Welcome to the Hopkins Press Podcast. I'm Mary Alice Yeski with the Hopkins Press Journals Division. Today's episode is a conversation between Hopkins Press Acquisitions Editor Joe Rusco and Dr. Rachel Pruchno. Joe Rusco acquires commissions and develops book products for Hopkins Press in the field of health and wellness. The overall focus of the health and wellness program is on providing evidence-based content that can help improve personal health or enhance professional development. Specific areas of interest include dementia, chronic health conditions, aging, cancer, and mental and behavioral health. Dr. Rachel Pruchno is an endowed professor of medicine at Rowan University and the director of research at the New Jersey Institute for Successful Aging. She joined Joe to discuss her book, Beyond Madness, The Pain and Possibilities of Serious Mental Illness. I'm Joe Rusco, and I'm the editor of Health and Wellness Content at Johns Hopkins University Press. Thank you for joining today, uh, Rachel. Thank you, Joe. Um, so uh, we're going to dive right into what was your motivation for writing this new book? So my motivation included love, um, secret keeping, decades of secret keeping, and the thought that there probably was some evidence-based practices that were better than the hit and miss strategies that I was using um, when both my mother and my adopted daughter um, suffered from serious mental illnesses. Got it, thank you. I, um, as a refresher, I had read your book originally some time ago, but yesterday I was refreshing myself and I went through it and I was surprised that um, I got so far. I, I just got lost in your book. And I think some of it has to do with these wonderful, very vivid descriptions of individuals who were decompensating in various ways. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you uh, came about writing the, these very vivid descriptions? Because it's a powerful portion of your uh, book, which is not just clinical or very only scientific, but very um, narrative-based as well. So. Sure. So, so I'm going to answer that question, but I'm going to I'm going to come back a little bit and, and provide a little context for this book and how this book came to be. Um, so, I think as you know, in 2014, um, I published my memoir, and and that book is called Surrounded by Madness. Um, and in that book, I talk about my experiences uh, with both my mother. Um, who suffered from, used to be called manic depression, and my adopted daughter suffering from bipolar disorder. And what, what those two experiences had in common um, were that my family both times, both back in the 70s and more recently, um, kept those illnesses secret. Mm. And it was only when my daughter left home at age 18 um, and I had a lot of explaining to do to my family, to my brothers, to whom I'm very close, but I had managed to hide things from them. Um, and so I sat down to try and write this story to, because I, it, you know, it's a very painful story, um, but it was a story that I felt like I needed to tell. And so, I mean, I, I've, I've seen and understood mental illness as a mother, um, as, first as a child, then as a mother and, and also as a professional, because I have, I have studied um, serious mental illness and um, uh, most importantly, focusing on the effects that these illnesses have on families. Um, so I wrote the memoir and after I wrote it, 
um, I started, do, I, I wrote the memoir because I wanted to talk about it. What, you know, I was a secret keeper for so many years. And once I decided I needed to tell my story, I really needed to tell my story. And so I started doing um, talks at universities. And so I would talk with um, social work students and psychology students and medical students. And I would, I would, you know, do my 20 minute PowerPoint and tell my story. And then I would open it up to the audience and I would say, okay, let's talk about serious mental illness. Ask me anything you want. And those conversations were so um, powerful that they made me realize that I needed to tell another story. And, and the other story is, is, you know, what are these illnesses and, and how can we do better? All these, these students wanted to know, how can we do better for the next generation? So we were, we, we did, you know, it was terrible in the past. Um, and, and what can we do better? And so, so that really was the, the heart of this book. Um, and so I, I decided, okay, I'm going to do it. And I realized that I needed to tell not only my story, because my stories um, were important, but, but I didn't have firsthand experience with um, what it was like to, to suffer from schizophrenia or what it was like to suffer from um, depression. And so I decided I needed to find some people who actually had lived experience um, and I had to get these people to talk to me and, and not only tell me their stories, but make me feel what they felt so that I could make the reader feel what they felt. And it sounds like from what you're telling me, I did a pretty good job. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about how I did that. Sure. Um, so, so, so it was, it was a challenge, right? How do you find somebody with schizophrenia who will talk to me? I didn't know anybody. So I start, I'm a researcher, right? Start doing my research. And I found a man named Joe Bowers who had written a memoir. He had told his story. He had written his story a few years before I found it and, and I read it. And there were a lot of powerful stories in that book. And, and reading it, I realized what it must have felt like um, to experience that first episode of schizophrenia, to hear those voices in, in his head. Um, and, and then I, I reached out to him and I, I asked him if he would talk to me and um, he was hesitant at first, but, but then we struck up a relationship and um, I asked him a lot of hard questions. I asked him, you know, now at, at the time, at the time he was in his seventies um, and I was really asking a lot of him. I was asking him to go back and, and to help me, help me understand what it felt like to, to hear those voices in his head telling him to take the shotgun and kill his grandmother. And he did it. And, and you know, I, I, as a writer, I knew that I needed to get vivid details, you know? So he would tell me that like this, th there was this, this old desk and I said, okay, well, well, what was the desk made out of? So I sent him back to, to you know, at, at, at some point it was, it felt a little ridiculous to me, but I knew I needed those details to make it come alive and to really make it pop. Um, so, so I worked extensively with the three people, um, one person, a man with schizophrenia, um, uh, Michelle Crack, who had um, suffered from uh, bipolar disorder. Um, and then a friend of mine um, was the person who suffered from depressive symptoms. And so she and I spent a lot of time just sitting and talking and it was really, you know, getting into these people's lives, into their skin to understand what their experiences were, because I felt like, you know, we, we, we learn a lot from storytelling. 
Um, and I didn't want to make these stories up because I couldn't make them up. Yeah. Yeah. So I needed real people to tell me their stories. And, and these three people came forward. Um, and what I learned in the, the, uh, the experience, I learned a lot in, 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 from these people. Um, but one of the things that struck me, you know, I don't know, years into to talking with them was that um, my, my life as a gerontologist and my, my interest in mental illness were really coming together in this book. Um, why is that? Because the three heroes of my book um, are in their 70s. And so it was really interesting to me to think about Mm. Um, you know, mental illness in the context of a lifelong experience. That's right. The, in addition to being vivid, I think these three stories also illuminate how mental illness doesn't present in only a singular fashion. And there's not only one. And so these stories really help illuminate that for me. And I think the reader um, about, uh, so, so do you want to talk about, um, various forms of mental illness and, and the difference between mental illness and mental health that you um, discuss in your book? Sure. Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting question to think about. And I think very often we, we use the terms health and illness interchangeably. Um, and, and I don't think about it that way. I think about, I think about mental health as something that we can all have on some continuum, sometimes in our lives are, are more challenging than others. And, and um, sometimes we're sad and sometimes we're happy and sometimes we're, you know, we have different, different, different experiences. Um, so mental health, that, that's mental health. And, and my training um, in human development really focused on mental health and helping people achieve mental health. Um, mental illnesses, especially these, what are now called serious mental illnesses, um, illnesses like schizophrenia, like bipolar disorder, like schizoid affective disorder, like depressive disorder. Um, these illnesses are, um, uh, th these illnesses captivate a whole person's life. Um, they challenge them, they, they, they require um, intense therapy all the time, whether it be medical or, or, or otherwise. Um, and so these are, these are illnesses that people need to manage, you know, think about diabetes. It's an illness that a person needs to manage for their whole life. Um, and so, so I think that, that people can suffer from serious mental illness, but also have mental health. So my three heroes, um, I think that they, they, are, they are mentally healthy. Um, they, they, have, they have conquered these horrible experiences and come out on the other end. Um, they, they come out on the other end to, to be healthy and, and, and fulfilled. They have all had um, successful careers at work. They all have families. Um, and, and that's not often how we think about some of these illnesses. Um, and, and, you know, whether these three heroes are representative, I don't know, um, but they certainly teach us that with the appropriate supports and with the appropriate medications and therapies and a lot, a lot, a lot of hard work, these people can lead fulfilling lives. You mentioned earlier, and I'm going to circle back to the point about the stigma that you experienced yourself and your family with a diagnosis of a mental illness. And in your book, you propose a, a, a somewhat, not radical, but, but a quite a different approach for, for coming out using the terms of 
coming out. Um, can you tell us a little bit of, more about that approach and uh, what you're advocating for there? Sure. Um, so yes, I think that stigma is alive and well. Um, there's been there have been countless research studies that show that um, people in the general public don't want to have someone with a serious mental illness as a neighbor, and they don't want to work with them, and they don't want their family member to marry somebody with a serious mental illness. And these these attitudes and beliefs are the same or worse now than they were 20, 30 years ago. We've got that good data. We, we know that. Um, and so when, 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 when my mother was ill in the 70s, nobody talked about mental illnesses, nobody. I mean, my, my father's brother, my father and his brother were very, very close. And, and even he didn't know what was wrong. He knew every once in a while my mother went to the hospital and you know, she was taking medications, but he didn't know because we didn't talk about it. We didn't tell anybody. Um, so, um, you know, I, I think that with my daughter, my husband and I made the decision not to talk about it because we didn't want other people. We didn't want the other kids to avoid her. We didn't want the other parents to not let them come to her house, to, to their house. Um, it was a protective kind of thing. Um, I, I think the issue is that there is so much that we don't understand about serious mental illness. And we don't understand about serious mental illness because people like me kept secrets for 40 years. Um, and so if, if everybody's keeping a secret, then the NIH is not putting money behind it. You know, um, we, we, we put a lot of money behind cancer and diabetes because we talk about these illnesses. Um, with serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia, like bipolar disorder, we don't talk about those illnesses and we haven't talked about those illnesses. Um, so, so talking, I think talking is important. And what I personally learned is that um, every time I tell my story to somebody or I tell, I tell somebody I'm working on a book about serious mental illness, I get back the, oh, me too, or oh, my brother, or oh, my sister-in-law, or oh, my neighbor. Um, I, I think the most poignant experience that I had with that was um, years ago when I was just starting to work on this book, um, I was at, at, at the health club and I was exercising and I was on the elliptical machine. And the guy next to me was somebody I'd seen, you know, for, for a long time. And he was, you know, hey, how you doing? What's new? And, and I said, oh, I'm working on this book. And he said, what's the book about? And I told him and he stopped. And he told me his mother suffered from bipolar disorder and his son was in the psychiatric hospital now, then. Wow, wow. And you know, if I hadn't said anything, he never would have said anything because why would you ever? But my talking about it freed him to talk about it. And I thought, wow, that's really powerful. And, and, and I need to do more of that. And so, so that's, that's, you know, talking is good. Um, so bringing up the topic on your own actually encourages others to feel comfortable about it does. sharing. It does. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you when I've, when I did the speaking uh, tours at the universities, um, I it got to the point where I could, you know, read the audience and watch the faces of these kids. And I knew who was going to come up to me afterwards and say, me too. They, they got teary. They were just so focused on what I was saying. And, and they couldn't wait to come up and say, and give me a hug and say, you know, me too. I'm, I, I'm my mother, my brother, my whatever. 
So it's very prevalent. These, these yeah. illnesses, these illnesses have been hidden for so long, but they are very prevalent. Um, and, and I think that the more we talk about them, we know, we know that we, that, that stigma um, diminishes when people have contact with others who have mental illness. You know, if you have a positive, you, you, you experience them as a person. I learned that when I, when I, you know, got to know these three people. I learned so much from them. And I learned that, you know, don't have to scratch the surface too much to know that these people have the, have similar emotions to me and they have similar experiences and they have similar struggles and they love their families and they want to work. And, they're, they're, you know, I, I think, you know, what really struck me is that any of us could experience these illnesses and, and this hiding stuff is, is not good for the people with mental illness and it's not good for the families. Um, you know, what does it do? It, it, it um, makes us feel like we're the only ones, we're the only ones that are suffering. And we're, of course we're not, um, but many people feel like, you know, they're embarrassed and they don't want to talk about it. And they blame themselves. You talk about blaming yourself or, or, or some other factors that perhaps you're responsible. And then you also talk about the um, genetic um, uh, source for many of these conditions and, and what have you in your book sure. as well. I, we, we, I mean, there's a lot that we don't know. We know that there's, that, that, that genetics plays an important role. And, and you know, that, that rates of, of um, schizophrenia and bipolar are highly heritable. So, you know, if, if somebody in the family has it, then it's very likely that other people suffer from either that same illness or another serious mental illness. But I want, I want to come back and, and answer your question about this, this stigma um, uh, sort of coming out uh, that, that I write about in the book. And, and that was not my idea. Um, that, that idea came from Patrick Corrigan, who himself is a psychologist um, who suffers from um, a serious mental illness. And for years and years, he didn't tell anybody. He didn't tell his colleagues. He didn't tell anybody. Um, and he finally, you know, his approach was, I need to come out. And so, so little by little, he kind of came out to people. Um, and, and, you know, I think there's really good evidence from the LGBT community. And, and we have so much to learn from that group about what happens when you start to make noise and when you come out. You know, they've made major inroads. People can get married now. They can have relationships. They can have families. They can adopt children. Um, I couldn't do that 15, 20 years ago. And so, you know, I think that the, the point behind that program, though, that the idea is that the more we talk about it, the more normalized it gets. Um, but, but I think that the point there is that each individual person with serious mental illness and family member needs to sort of weigh the pluses and the minuses. There are benefits to talking about these illnesses. You know, you, you learn you're not alone. You, you find how other people cope. You, you can, you, you get that kind of support. Um, but there are costs. We're not to a point now where I would recommend that somebody who's looking for a job. Right. I was just thinking of that, that, that yeah. situation during a job interview. I, mean, yeah. I, I was thinking of that exactly. Yeah. yeah so, so probably not best. I don't think, I don't think we're to that point. I mean, I would love to get to that point, but I don't think we're there now. I don't think it's wise. And, um, you know, that thanks to the ADA, people with serious mental, that's one of the protected disabilities. And these people do not have to, they don't have to talk about it. Um, and they are protected. So, you know, accommodate, if they are hired, accommodations need to be made. If they need some time out time, if they need, you know, some quiet time, whatever they need, the, the employer needs to, to, to recognize that. Telling and not telling is not a on off switch, not mm -hmm. a black and white thing. I think it's really, um, there are 
degrees, you know, what do you tell to whom and when? Right. And I think it's fluid. Um, you know, sometimes um, you know, people might know others for a while. And, and, you know, once they develop trust, I don't know that it's something you'd want to say on a blind date with somebody, for example, right? You know, hey, by, by the way, um, you know, I, I think that, that, that like many things, it's, it's, there are gradations of, of you know, what do you tell and what do you say when and, and how do you talk about these conditions? Another concept that, you're, that you bring up in your book is that of the rock bottom. And you hear this very often, whether watching TV or what have you about, um, that person needs to reach his or her own rock bottom before um, anything can happen. So very popular concept. What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's absolutely wrong. I think it's ridiculous. Um, and, and my husband and I were told that several times that once, especially once our daughter turned 18, um, she has to hit rock bottom. They said, the social worker said, the doctor said before we can help her. Well, why is that? Because, because she's an adult and she can make her own decisions. She has that right. It's this, this, in, this individual versus the collective benefit. Um, and, you know, I, I had a doctor tell me, I know she can't make a good decision. I know she shouldn't be making a decision, but she has the right to make that decision. You know, under, under the, the, the way our society is structured, um, everybody has the right to make their own decision. And, and you have to be, you know, either in danger of harming yourself or, or having a knife and ready to harm somebody else before anything can be done. Um, but, but the whole concept of, of forcing somebody who really lacks the ability sometimes, I mean, not everybody, but, but there are people who lack the ability to um, make decisions that are in their own best interest and the interest of others and making them, making them fall so far, making them either become homeless or, you know, being in prison um, doesn't sound like a very humane way to treat people. So, so what can we do? Say that I witness someone on the street here in Baltimore, experiencing what I perceive to be a uh, mental illness episode, what could I do? What would you recommend that I do in that situation? Yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure that, that you as a fellow citizen could do much of anything at this point. You, you wouldn't know what the person is suffering from or what, the, we're just not capable at this point. Right now, we can't do anything, and and I don't think that that that's a solu- that that's a problem that that an individual can solve can solve right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that there are, you know, other. Th- I think that there are issues that you know families confront, um, that teachers and police confront um, that we can deal with at this point. But but I think that that you know sort of reaching a point where where one fellow citizen can do something to help another. I'm not quite sure that mm-hmm. we're there because um, mm-hmm. I think, I think that would be resisted and, and, you know, rightfully so because. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not yeah. trained in, in how yeah. to. But, but I mean, we, we, we have, we have a system, we have a, a society in which, um, you know, individual rights trump everything else. And, and sometimes that's not such a good idea. Um, and we have to be careful how we proceed to, um, to, try and help somebody because we could do more damage than help. Well, you talk about in your book about educating 
individuals. And a lot of these stories do educate readers about what it's like to experience some of the symptoms of a serious mental illness. And you also talk about um, this crisis intervention training um, uh, for more professionals. Uh, can you walk us through what that, that's all about? Yeah, crisis intervention training um, was started to teach police officers how to deal with people with serious mental illnesses. So frequently, when someone is in crisis, when someone is hearing voices and they are wielding a knife or a gun, um, the police will be called, okay? Because that's kind of what we do in our society, right? This is out of control person, call the police. You feel like your life is in danger. And then the police would come and- it would, The situation would escalate, that's you would right. imagine. More that, often than not, yeah. they, the situation would escalate. And typically the person with serious mental illness would land up dead. Mm. So, so that's not, a, you know, they, they agreed that's not a good solution. So, so they started this crisis intervention um, training that, that teaches police what these mental illnesses are and how best to react to them. Um, you know, you want to diffuse the situation and you want to, I think tr police are trained to come in and, you know, have their guns out and, and ask questions later. But I think that, that not understanding, I think these programs really teach the police what mental illnesses are and what strategies work better than other strategies for putting, you know, for, for calming the person. And I think some communities now are even um, um, sort of doing away or, or having the police come, but, but accompanied by a mental health professional. Or a social worker or what have a you. Social yeah. Worker yeah. Or somebody who can talk them down and can calm the situation and figure out what needs to be done. And, and of course, that's a win-win situation. Um, you know, we, we, too many people with serious mental illness land up in the, the, um, in the jails and the prisons um, because, they're, 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 because they don't get the, the medical care that they need. Um, you know, we know that people with serious mental illnesses um, as a group are more likely to be violent than other people, but if they are on medication, if they are in treatment, if you control for things like poverty and previous um, uh, psychotic episodes, they're no more violent than you or me. There's been such an increase in uh, the number of uh, mental illness episodes that we witness in public. And if you look at the New York subways as an example, there was a shooting recently, there have been people pushing others in front of of trains and, and what have you. And I was curious about what we can do other than additional policing, which as you mentioned earlier, is problematic for a variety of reasons. What, what can we do about the situations? Right, so I think the first thing that we can do is to get these people the treatment that they need and often want, okay? Um, I, I think that there are so many people, it, it's so difficult for people to get treatment to get sustained treatment, to get treatment that really works. Um, that, 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 that's, that's the first challenge that we do have medications that work. The problem is they um, don't cure people. They relieve the symptoms, 
Okay. So it's complicated to figure out. And, and many of these medications, by the way, have side effects that are horrific, but some of them don't. And it's a very individualized kind of tinkering, I think, that needs to be done um, that, that, that requires sustained effort on the part of well-trained physicians and psychiatrists to, to help this person. Um, but, but we do have those. We have those in our, in our toolbox right? To, we, we know what people need. Um, part of the problem is that, that our hospitals, the way their, their um, insurance works, it's a, it's a revolving door. And so people can only stay in, in a psychiatric hospital for a day or two. Um, well, right. we know that it takes at least a couple of weeks to stabilize somebody on a new medication to know whether it's really going to work. You got to have time, right? And we don't want to give people time. So, so one of the first things that we can do is to, to improve the way, the, the way we structure care for these people. It was surprising in your book to read about how many individuals with a serious mental illness are untreated. And then I was doing some additional research about how um, it's estimated that only 50% of U.S. counties have a psychiatrist available. So, so we're on the East Coast and, and lots of different medical professionals, but in other rural uh, and more suburban areas where there's not as much um, healthcare available. It was, it was very surprising to me. So all of these barriers to getting care. Yeah, I mean, that really surprised me when, when I was looking for care for my daughter, it was really hard. Um, and I was looking for an adolescent psychiatrist, and they're even rarer than psychiatrists in, in, in general. Um, waiting lists are really long. Many of these people do not take insurance. Um, there's no quality control over them. You have to find a professional, a healthcare professional that the person with illness can can deal with. Um, you know, we 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 went through a half dozen. Um, psychologists and psychiatrists before we found the right mix. And that's very hard. The, the waiting lists are long. So, so yeah, we need to do a better job of training the next generation of people. Um, I, I, there was a fascinating article in yesterday's New York Times about adolescent mental, mental health. Um, uh, and I, I, as I read it, you know, I realized that, that, you know, pregnancy rates are down and, and, Drinking alcohol rates are down and drug use is down among kids these days, among adolescents these days. But rates of cutting and rates of depression and rates of anxiety are skyrocketing. We don't know why. We don't know why. And as, as I read that, I found myself saying, you know, if, if I were a young person, you know, beginning my career, that's exactly where I would go. Yeah. So, so many of these, so many mental illnesses present themselves for the first time in adolescence. Younger, yeah, um, yeah. You know, the, the, and I'm talking about the illnesses that we call serious mental illnesses, as well as, as other illnesses that can debilitate a person. Um, and, and as you can imagine, if a teenager is, is, you know, having all this angst and they're cutting themselves because they're hurting so much um, and, and there are no professionals, very few professionals, you know, you say, yeah, well, okay, I'm in the Philadelphia area and um, we should have good medical care, but, but it was really hard to find the right person. And we waited a long time. Would, so, one, would one solution be, um, so, so given that there aren't that many psychiatrists available, and as you mentioned, the insurance issues, I also learned that um, also nearly about 50% of of psychiatrists do not accept 
insurance. Uh, uh, and so give, given all of that, what about um, allowing certain psychologists trained uh, adequately and what have you to prescribe? Would that be, given that there are over 100,000 psychologists in the United States, they're more widely available um, at, at the community level, would that be a solution or would that be a, what, so what are you, I, I know you don't discuss this in your book, but I'm just throwing it out there. So. Yeah, no. So um, there, there are actually, it, it depends on the state. In some states, psychologists can um, prescribe medications and in most states they cannot. Um, but there are more and more um, healthcare professionals, whether they be psychiatric social workers or nurses, nurses. Yep. Um, who are being trained to, to help with this sort of this huge gap in the, the um, provider arena. So I think we're starting to see that. Um, I think it will be slow because as you can imagine, the psychiatrists who do have the prescribing rights, the medical doctors who do have the prescribing rights, don't want to give that up to other people. Um, so, so that's a debate that's been um, around for a long time between the psychiatrists and the psychologists in terms of you know, the, the rights to prescribe. Um, you know, I think in the best of worlds, wouldn't it be wonderful if the social worker and the psychologist and the psychiatrist all work together to help the patient? Mm. Um, this was something that just really floored me when um, the, the, we would see a psychiatrist who would, for my daughter, who would prescribe medications, okay? And so we saw her once a month for five minutes. Why was that? Because that's what insurance paid for. And there was no interaction with the therapy nope. therapist as well. There was no interaction. Why? Because they don't get paid to do that. They don't get compensated for the time that it takes to do that. So the coordination of care. So a better need, coordination that's right. of care. We need, I mean, there are roles for the psychologist and for the social worker and for the psychiatrist. And you know, if they all work together, the patient would benefit. But but that's not how the world works. Um, and, and that really surprised me um, in terms of finding, you know, I, I think we we found a psychiatrist first. Um, after many months, we found a psychiatrist. Um, and then when she pulls me aside and said, you know, your daughter really needs to talk to a therapist of some sort. And I said, yeah, I agree. Do you know anybody? She wouldn't refer anybody. So frustrating. So frustrating. Very yeah. frustrating. And so I had to find the people. And then even after I found them, they wouldn't share notes or conversations. And then when my daughter was hospitalized, the inpatient folks don't talk to the outpatient folks. So there's so the only glue that's holding the system together are the family, who of course are at their wit's end and, and trying really hard to help their loved one, but don't know which way to turn first. So education through books like your own and others would be one solution. What else would you recommend to those who want to do more? We're all talking about mental health, whether it's in ch children, whether it's in those with cancer, whether it's family members, what else can we do? Is it a political uh, solution or, or what would you recommend that, that listeners do? Yeah, there, there are so many things wrong with the system. You know, the question is, where do you start? Um, and, and I, I guess 
I, I come down to the place to start is by talking about it, by admitting that, you know, someone in my family has this illness. And, and you, I think, you know, we get enough groundswell happening that I think we get the attention of the politicians who are the ones who are going to make something happen. And um, the, the um, you know, I, I, it's a money issue. Like, where, where is the money going to come to, to fix all these problems that we have? And, and when we have these problems, these are systemic problems that are not going to be solved overnight. And some of it is um, back to education. Again, I know that in certain cities, including Baltimore, uh, it's recommended to call another number rather than calling 911, which immediately uh, triggers a police response to call perhaps a 311 or another number, depending on your area, uh, um, so, so that it doesn't become a, um, a criminal type of uh, uh, start of the whole process. It becomes more of a, oh, what can we do about this? Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's a good start. Um, I think that in in communities where they don't have the three one one option, it's really important that that if the situation gets out of hand and it's critical to call the police, that the police be told that this is a mental illness call, um, and that they should, you know, know exactly what they're walking into, um, and 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 hopefully they've they've participated in a, in a CIT training and, and they, they have some sensitivity. So, so, you know, again, it's a process, I think, of, of educating the police, of teaching them, of putting the, the social structures in place so that we have a 311 um, option. You know, I think that that exists in some communities, but certainly not all. Um, and it's, I think it's a start. Yeah. Are there any portrayals in TV or movie that you think do a good job of, I think we know about a lot of poor uh, depictions of mental illness in films where the, uh, individuals are depicted as being very violent or just very, uh, are there any good examples of where um, uh, filmmakers are, have done a good job about um, a more balanced approach in your opinion that you can think of? Hmm. So, so I think Homeland did a good job okay. with the character. Um, they made it clear that she was suffering, but they also made it clear that she had the um, ability and the, the she, she was able to be a good cop. And, you know, she, um, she, she had a high power position and, um, but yet you saw that she was, you know, she, she was haunted. Um, you know, I think the, um, the movie about John Nash was terrific. Um, that's a really compelling story about, about this brilliant mathematician that, that suffered from the voices. And, and I think that the, the filmmaker there really did a great job of, of showing what that felt like to him. Um, they, they, they did something in, in, in um, the movie that you couldn't do um, in, in other places. It was very clear to the audience the auditory hallucination the auditory hallucination yeah. and, and yeah. the visual too yeah. there were yeah. spies and um the, as a watcher you knew what was real and what wasn't but john nash um didn't um yeah. so so i think that those you know did a really good job of of showing people you know what what of showing people what these things look like what these experiences look like but also of depicting real people you know i just keep coming back to these people are real people and, and 
you know, that's what I did with the vignettes in, in my book. These people are real people. Um, and they've got these incredible challenges and, and how do they, how did, I mean, it's amazing to me that they come out of these and they can talk about it and they can, they can, you know, try and make life better for the next generation of people with these illnesses, because, because there's so many people that suffer. Yeah. I imagine some of these stories being very helpful in a classroom setting. Although now that, um, teachers have so much to, to, um, teach, but, but I imagine um, these being very helpful in, um, you know, high school situation or high school classes in educating um, students about uh, what mental illness is. So this education really needs to start in the middle, in the middle schools, um, in, in the middle schools, it starts to become clear when, when there are some problems and, and just starting to talk about these problems and these situations and providing a safe space for kids or a safe person for them to come talk to, I think is really critical. Um, I also think that, that what we need to do is educate the teachers, the clergy. Um, these people are in health. They're, they're in helping professions. They want to help. Um, even the, the um, general doctors, general practitioners, um, these are people that they're sort of the first line that people go to when something's not right. And very often they do more often than not, they don't know what to do and they don't know where the resources are in the community and they don't know what to, how to help. They want to help. They're in helping professions, but they don't know how to help. So I think that, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot in this book for teachers and for clergy um, in terms of, um, what we do know that works and, and how they might be able to use these um, strategies to help a struggling student or a parishioner. Um, yeah, you, you, you mentioned or national organizations that have chapters like NAMI and others in your book. Do you want to highlight any of those um, uh, web resources or agencies that, that are helpful in your in your estimation? Yeah, you know, NAMI is a national organization and it's been around for years. Um, and what's really interesting to me is that when I was going through this experience with my daughter, I never heard about NAMI. I, I learned about NAMI afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think about, okay, I'm a well-educated person. Right. I um, was looking for help and no one, you know, not the therapist my daughter was seeing, not the pediatrician my daughter was seeing, not the psychologist or the psychiatrist. Nobody ever said to me, you might want to check out NAMI. If they had, I would have. So, so I think, again, this is about educating the, 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 the people, the, the trusted yeah. people in the community um, that, that NAMI exists and that there are support groups for families and for people with mental illness um, and that there are um, that you're not the only one you know I I again as a psychologist I kind of realized I wasn't the only one but I often felt like I was the only one and if you're feeling that way then just think about what someone else yeah, yeah. what I tried to do in the book was to address every issue that I wish I had known about when mm -hmm. I was a family member struggling mm -hmm. um, 
And then I tried to say, okay, you know, I, I, there, there must be some evidence-based solutions. There must be some ways that are better than other ways to deal with these illnesses. And what are they? And so I approached that part of the problem as a researcher. I am trained as a researcher. And so I read all these, you know, voluminous papers and dry journal articles to try and understand, okay, so what's, what do we know? What's the problem and what's the solution? Um, and then I try, and then I distill it in, in the book into, into words that I, I think that lay people can, can appreciate and understand. Um, and there are some, some checklists in there, you know, things to do, you know, how do you, what do you do if somebody says they're suicidal or what do you do? How do you find a healthcare provider? Most people don't know how to do it. And so this book very clearly um, helps people. And, and, and I'm, I'm hoping that the book is widely read and shared and, and used and um, that, that it helps us to expand the dialogue and it helps us to eventually get to the point where we're gonna have some of these more structural societal changes that will make life better for people with serious mental illnesses because you know, it's, it's, it's a crime the way we treat them now. It's, it's just, it's, it's horrible. True. Um, we are approaching running out of time. Uh, anything else that you'd like to, uh, did a great job explaining uh, everything about your book. Any, any last messages for uh, readers who are interested in this topic? I'd say read the book and um, I'd say think about it. And, 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 you know, I think if, if a reader can, can, can come away from that book with one or two ideas about what they themselves might do, or they as a family member might do um, differently than they have been doing, I, there are a lot of things that I wish I had known about and what to do and how to approach it. Um, you know, how to talk to somebody who, um, doesn't think there's anything wrong with them. How do you do that? Well, I learned that there are ways to do that and, and they don't involve raising your voice. Confrontation, <laughs> that's correct. That's, right? Um, yeah. but, but yet that was my go-to. It's like, what do you mean you're jumping <laughs> out of a window? What do you mean you're doing, right? So there, there are better, I learned that there are better ways to deal with these very difficult situations. Um, and so I hope that, I hope that the, the work that I did to, you know, bring this book to fruition. Um, if it helps one person, I did a good job. Well, very good. Thank you for chatting with us today. And I appreciate your time. And the book again is Beyond Madness, The Pain and Possibilities of Serious Mental Illness by Dr. Rachel Rukno. Thank you, Joe. This podcast is a production of Hopkins Press. For more information, please visit press.jhu.edu.